What we do here is go back, 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 back. It does no service to creating value for people where I came from if I won't say where I came from. And so nobody thought any thought this movie was going to work, and it did. One of my greatest struggles as a journalist is that I'm an emotional person and I'm a sensitive person. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Guys, this podcast is built on the premise that hearing stories of struggle from people who most of us just think have it made is a way for the rest of us to realize we're not alone. If you've already subscribed on iTunes and you like what you hear, thank you. And please share it with others. You can take a screenshot of your phone while you're listening, post it on your social media, tag at Matty Dell on Instagram or at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook, email it to friends, shout it from your rooftop, beat people up on the street and force them to listen, whatever. If you can leave an iTunes review, boom, I love it. Either way, I appreciate the support. I'm glad you're listening, even if this is your first one. And I hope you're as inspired by my guests as I am. Any difficult experience, tragedy, time in your life, I do believe it brings amazing opportunity. My guest today is Maggie Nielsen, and she has had a huge impact on the world with her company, Global Philanthropy. In a nutshell, they make sure that philanthropists who are giving away large sums of money are doing it strategically so that they get the most bang for their buck in terms of moving the needle on difficult issues. They're involved with everything from hurricanes to civil rights to sex trafficking to so many more complicated, tragic issues that face our world's culture. Maggie works hand-in-hand with some of the world's largest stars and business leaders, and yet the person who connected us tells me Maggie's still the kind of person who brings her chicken soup when she's sick. A total baller who was kind and humble enough to share her wisdom with us by sitting down with a dude who, at the end of the day, has a couple of microphones and a laptop in a room behind his garage. Maggie Nielsen, folks. I've heard that about you. I figured you would kind of come in with a very <laughs> humble attitude because uh, you're, our mutual friend says that you uh, basically won't talk about anything unless I bring it up. Oh, how funny. Uh, well, she, yeah. Well, it's because she's such an effusive friend. Yeah. Well, I've she, always like. <laughs> well, I, I sat next to you that night. Um, exactly. At, at the dinner. House. And you're so kind of, you just, you, from the dinner, if everybody didn't tell me all these things that you've done. I just like, she's really cool. She's really down to earth. She sounds like a great mom is involved and like, and that's it. And then <laughs> I, you know, I won't, we'll get into what you've done um, to make a really huge impact on the world. And I don't even know the half of it. Yeah. And I've been you told know, that you'll I be think... like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really do anything. And then. Well, you know. I think that I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I think some of it is obviously just who you are as a person, of course. And I, you know, for all kinds of social and other reasons, was probably raised to be more humble and whatever. But also, I think that that a little bit is what makes me good at what I do. Because I work with big egos and I work with big personalities and I work with big brands. And so where I'm most effective is if I'm quietly doing my work really well behind the scenes. So it's kind of a funny and nobody knows you're there in a way. Exactly. It's like a great cinematographer. Like in a really good way. Like if yeah. I do my work best, you know about my client's work. Yeah. So it's a funny, I don't know. No, it's interesting. I So I had a cinematographer on the show and he, uh, it's the same thing. It's like, if they do their job really well. You don't know they existed. You're not. Yeah. I mean, there are some that are known like for the camera moves and everything, but it's almost like the more invisible. And yet there's a feeling that people get. When they see the film, yes. there's a feeling that's been a that tone that's been set. The performances yep. are amazing. They feel intimate, but there's not a lot of attention called to the camera work. It's right. just. I think that's exactly right. I also joke that, you know, I was raised in Seattle, which is a very like passive aggressive, humble type of place. So I'm like, there's also part of me that's like. I can't boast or whatever. It's a funny, yeah, funny cultural. What thing. about what about uh, religion? I didn't expect to get in there, but oh, does yeah. that play into it in terms That's a of good like? Question. I don't know. I mean, I was raised in a really Catholic community and household, but not 
in any demonstrative way. Like, I think a lot of the stereotypes of Catholicism, you know, the rulers and the this and that, I never experienced any of that. I just, like, went to a Catholic school, and that was where I happened to go, and my friends happened to go to Catholic school, too. The religion wasn't as um, front and center as I feel like religion stereotypically is, and I also feel like that's a little bit um, a function of Seattle as well. Yeah. I've read different things that say it's one of the least religious cities. And it's not that people aren't practicing. It's just that it isn't as like, like I remember when I first moved to New York and people would make comments that I almost took as like slurs. You know what I mean? They'd be like the Jews, the this, the that. And it'd be like my Jewish friends saying it or my this. And I was like, oh, you guys just talk about things in a much more upfront, yeah. clear way. Whereas in Seattle, your religion is like part of who you are in the background. Yeah. I don't know. Interesting. It sounds like like even just the way you're saying this humble kind of, oh, excuse me. This this needs to be uh, shut down here. Um, So, yeah, it's almost like the way people... describe, you know, we have a mutual Canadian friend, Canadians, yes, they always say is. that they're very so kind of understated. I always that I'm honorary Canadian. Oh, I grew really? up in Seattle. <laughs> I figure it's closer to that than most of the cultural centers. I actually was in a um, meeting this week with two of my clients who are Canadian, they're rock stars. And I apologized for something and they were like, yay, you're Canadian. I was <laughs> like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. That's so funny. And what's actually even more funny about that to me is that you're like, you know, two clients, they're rock stars. Most people are like, oh yeah, they're a total rock star. You're being serious. They actually <laughs> are rock stars. True. I don't know who they are, but that I know from the people that you've worked with that, that you are saying they actually are rock stars. That's like on their, uh, you know, their taxes. That's what they do. Yeah, that's um, true. That's so funny. <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, there's like, there's a, a quiet worker bee kind of yeah. mentality, it sounds. And I had a similar you thing with that, being raised Catholic and, but it wasn't right. Like it's like be humble, all. be whatever. But I think too, it's also kind of who you are as a person. Like I get intrinsic reward. Like these are the things you learn about yourself as an adult. There's so many people who are about the external rewards. I'm like, I'm the person who, if I did well at the end of the day, I'm good. Yeah. I don't necessarily need or even feel comfortable with like words or whatever. I yeah. just want to do really good work. Yeah. And, and that, I, I, how much of that is from Seattle or Catholicism or whatever? I don't know. My guess is they all kind of pointed in a similar direction and gender, I think, plays a role too. I also think that what I've found, the more I talk to people that um, have made a big impact in the world, is that a lot of the you know, people like yourself that are, have really done a lot of things that that's how they've done the things they've done is that they're focused on the right things as opposed to the external reward. And, and so there is, there's like this underlying driving, it's a purpose or it's a, you know, there's a a large why rather than like a, okay, I want to do this and get the awards. And I agree with that completely. And I think it has bigger implications too. Like it reminds me of something I saw recently. I don't know if it was Oprah or who it was. Where I think when you've become Oprah, you talk about things like their common sense. But when, you know, early on, I feel like society and all kinds of factors reward things that don't sustain for the long run. Whereas if you believe in what you do and you care about what you do, that makes it easier to navigate the downs and to keep going in a way that eventually is an uphill trajectory. Whereas if you're, you know, just about the promotion or the this or the that, it's all pretty short term. Yeah. Yeah. It's all because, the cheesy stuff we tell our kids, but it turns out it's true. But it's true. <laughs> yeah. Like when I, I always, like I have part of a stump speech I sometimes give at business schools and whatnot, where I'm like, look, if I look around, I'm one of very few people who loves what I do. And that came with a lot of ups and downs and a lot of choices to not make as much money or do this or that, because in the long run, I was doing what was right for me. Yeah. But. So tell me about the. You know, let's kind of go back. You're in Seattle. You're in a Catholic school. Are you are you playing sports? Are you really great student? Are yeah. you you know what's so your... I feel like I had honestly the most stereotypical kind of middle upper middle income upbringing you could have. I was in a suburb of Seattle. I happened to be in a Catholic community. I played sports, but nothing like sports are today. Like I played yeah. at the YMCA basketball once a year. I put you know there were yeah. not club teams. There were not all of this stuff. I mean, so I was definitely athletic. Um, I definitely was probably more of an academic, although I think that started to come through a little more in high school. 
And I think similar to what we were saying a minute ago, it's more because I was intellectually curious. It, like who I am as a person is always reading things and asking questions and curious and analyzing things. It wasn't for straight A's. I wasn't a kid. Who, and then you weren't I just, trying to please. Right. It yeah. was, and I didn't have parents who were like, you must get straight A's. I mean, heck, I joke. It was the 70s and 80s. My parents were and are amazing parents, but it was a different parenting paradigm. I think putting a roof over the head and food on the table and sending them to a decent school was kind of like, Check. Check, yeah. Done it. Um, so no, they weren't pressuring me it's at all. It's just like that now. What are you talking yeah, about? Right, exactly. Yeah. All these poor kids with depression. Um, so yeah, so then all of a sudden one, you know, in towards the end of high school, I started to be being called like smart. And I didn't think of myself that way. I was like, oh, just because I like school and I raise my hand and I like to learn. And I think, yeah, I mean, Almost. What was what were you into, uh, you know, subject wise? Were you more of a historian? Were you more into, you know, math and science? What was your thing? You know, I think my thing, and you can see the clear through line to what I do today, was definitely on the humanities side. I loved history. I loved politics. I loved writing. I loved reading. I was definitely a little weaker at math and science, which then came through later when I went to grad school and I was almost shocked. I was like, oh, it turns out I'm actually good at this. I just didn't like it. Ah. I didn't, you know, I didn't. It didn't necessarily get me excited at the end of the day. But no, I loved writing. I loved, I, I went through all the phases. Like if we were learning about the Supreme Court, I was going to become a judge. If we were learning about, you know, yeah. politics, I was going to go into politics. If we were learning, I mean, so it was always sort of in those lanes. Um, yeah. And then did you kind of, so if you went back and looked at yourself, say, uh, as a sophomore in high school, it would make sense that you do what you do now? I think so for reasons I could never have identified then. And I think what it is, is this. I often say to my team at work that what we do is particularly hard because it requires equal IQ and EQ, meaning that what we do requires data and analysis and knowledge and information. And at the same time, the EQ, the emotional quotient, matters. If you can't sell the idea, if you can't explain to a client why this conclusion matters, if you can't go create collaborations across sectors, you can't do what we do. And when I look back at who I was as a sophomore, it's funny, I was quote unquote smart, but I think I was almost trying to hide it. I don't know if being a smart girl was necessarily rewarded back then. So I decided to be a cheerleader and I was social and I always have been social. Um, I wasn't the stereotypical introverted nerd who just sits home and does math. And so I think that both of those carry through. I still love people and I'm still an extrovert, but I'm very data-driven and nerdy and read four newspapers in the morning. And wow. so both of those things are yeah. consistent. Yeah, I was thinking that uh, prior to this interview, I was thinking about someone else I interviewed who has a similar, uh, similar kind of dichotomy where you know, tremendous heart, wants to do well, makes an impact in the schools. You may, you actually may know him. I may have even, you may have even been there the night that I was there, the Marshall Tuck. Oh yeah, I know Marshall really well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Similar kind of thing where, you know, great heart and really genuine, sincere, and yet also, you know, he went to Harvard Business School and yeah. kind of got the the infrastructure side of things so that he could actually make an impact, yes. you know, and it, it, you, with what you do, I was thinking about the two of you because I said to him, how do you not get like down and unraveled? Mm-hmm. Because there are just so many things wrong, so Absolutely. many things to fix. Yep. How do you not get depressed? And with what you're dealing with, it's like, you're, you're dealing with sex trafficking, you're yeah. dealing with, yep. uh, you know, you're, I mean, we, we, it's, I've been told, you know, for you, it's global philanthropy, mm-hmm. right? But it, under that umbrella, it feels like you're grappling with some really, really difficult yeah. issues and you don't, <clears throat> excuse me, you don't seem to get uh, bogged down by it. No. Somehow you Well, I think there's a couple of components. First of all, you absolutely, and this was hard for me when I first transferred over into social issues work, you have to be able to detach. I remember having moments I'd come home from developing country contacts. And I remember having these weird existential moments where I was getting engaged at the time and I was getting these wedding gifts. And I remember staring at like these wine goblets I had registered for. And they were, you know, I don't know, $40, $60 each. And I remember just thinking... I'm working with these people for whom that's a year's income. 
how it's very hard to make sense of. And so I learned very early that if I was going to do this work, I had to compartmentalize. I couldn't make sense of that. I could just do what I could where I was with what I was at or where I was at with what I had. So I just, I don't even, I always joke, I'm a really good implementer. I'm good at pragmatic. I don't try and answer the big questions. I just try to do the best with my day. And then the other piece, um, even though you're right, these are horrible things that happen in the world, but because of my work every day, I'm only working with the people trying to fix it. So I'm only working with people like Marshall. I'm almost only working with people who have given up everything and are working so hard and bringing so much to the table and making such change, which actually brings me to the last reason that I am eternally optimistic, which is I do believe it's all getting better. I believe in the the famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote of, you know, the arc of social justice goes in the right direction. It's just not so steep. Yeah. If you look at basically any issue, it's gotten better, whether you're a person of color, whether you're a woman, no matter how bad it is, you know, we millions more, millions more, millions fewer children die every year than died a few years ago because of what we've done with we've done with vaccinations, sex trafficking. We have laws on the books now that didn't exist five years ago that are making a real change. So in a life where there's always going to be challenges and there's going to be negatives, I have the luxury of only working with the people pretty much who are working to change that. Yeah. And it is changing. Now, not fast enough in many cases, and there's certain things like the environment that are beyond terrifying, but I, I can't focus on that or I won't do my job as well. I just focus on what we can do to move things in the right direction. Yeah. How does that, how does what you're exposed to inform your parenting, uh, you know, and, and like, how does it, does it freak you out that this goes on oh. in the world and that you have kids or do you, do, you know, it's almost like being a, a homicide detective in yeah. a way you yep. see it all. You can't kind of. Yeah. You can't pretend. It's not. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. One for good and bad. I mean, if my kids were here, they would probably roll their eyes and just be like, Oh my God. God, make her stop. Because I probably am a tougher parent than I would be otherwise. They come to me with certain concerns and certain problems. And I'm like, you don't have real problems. I mean, I have full empathy for your life situation. Let's talk through it and let's work through it. But, you know, last week I was with two girls your age in Ethiopia who are raising themselves. So, and you have actually every luxury. You have, live in a safe environment. You go to a good school. You're surrounded by people who love you. The things that matter you have in spades so I think that definitely informs my parenting in a way that they probably don't appreciate now, but I hope will be a good thing in the long run. Yeah. Um, and then, well, I remember my my older daughter saying to me once when she was quite young, I think she was five or six, we were walking to school as we do every day. She said, Mom, why are all our friends' parents so mad at us? And I said, well, what do you mean, babe? She's like, well, it's not our fault. Like, we have things that you didn't have when you were kids. And I feel like our parents' friends or my friends' parents are always saying, you're so lucky. I had to do this. You know, it's the classic I walked barefoot to school in the snow analogy. Yeah. And I just said to her, look, I'm very proud that we're people who have worked hard so that we can give our kids certain advantages. But there are millions of people out there who work harder than I do who weren't able to get on that path. And so I just feel very strongly that my biggest goal as a parent is that they appreciate what they have. It's neither, you know, it's a luxury, they're afforded more, but they were born on third and I'm, it's really important to me that they know that. Yeah. Yeah. And do you kind of instill in them the, I'm sure you do just by example, but the the values that you are living, which is, you, you know, we've been fortunate, let's give back, let's do something. Do you feel like they're um, um, conscious of that yet? Are they kind of, are they conscious of what you do and and also how old are they they're 10 and 13 10 and 13 okay um, they're very conscious of what i do and my older one both by virtue of her age and who she is and what's going on in the world today is very much a reflection of that she can articulate all kinds of things about social injustice and as i hear sometimes in a positive light and sometimes in a negative light is very vocal about that at school so i know they're taking it in on some level, to me as a parent, my instinct says that it's the small lessons that are more important at this age 
actually talking them to them about homeless people and the causes when we walk past and then talking to them every month when I make a donation to our local homeless shelter. I hope that those micro lessons are more informative than I, I just don't I'm not counting on the fact that they look at what I do for a living and that has some macro impact. Yeah. Um, Which but, is interesting because you are our friend that, that put us together yes. here. Um said that's one of the things she said was that you have this ability to have a local impact and a global impact at the same time. She said, you know, she said, if I'm sick, she'll drop off, uh, you know, chicken noodle soup. You know, you're, you're kind of like, I put it in quotes, but normal, like oh. you're, you're like a very normal person and you're, you're here. But then I imagine you've got to be on the road quite a bit for yeah. work. And it, could you describe, because I'm realizing we're we're talking and we're 18 minutes in and we haven't really specifically said what you do. And sure. I think you've done so much that I don't even know that I could begin <laughs> to describe sure. what you do, but yep. how would you describe yes. it? So I have this company, it's called Global Philanthropy Group. And what we do is develop and implement philanthropic strategies for mostly high profile people and companies. And of course, that sounds a little bit business speak. So what it actually means is people come to us, either individuals or companies, and they say, I want to make a difference in the world. Sometimes they know what issue or issues they care about. Sometimes they don't. And they're basically saying to us, help me figure out how to do that. So the same as in anyone's life, they might have a financial advisor or a lawyer when they need legal advice. For people who have the means and the assets to make a difference in the world beyond what the quote unquote normal person can do in their local community, we help them understand how to do it effectively. And I know to a lot of people that sounds, I mean, trust me, everyone I grew up with, my friends, my family are like, oh, how hard is it? You have money. Believe it or not, it's hard to There's, give away your money to give to, away to do money it in a useful well way. Yeah. and to make it make a difference. And also the reality is without going way too deep into the nitty gritty, boring stuff of what I do, money is only part of the puzzle. There have been billions of dollars given away since the beginning of time of philanthropy that amounted to a whole lot of nothing. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who made a real change in the world with different kinds of assets. So it's not just about check writing at all, which is a bit of a misnomer about the word philanthropy. Philanthropy, the, the Latin root of it means for the good of humanity. So what we do is we sit down with clients and we say, okay, if you want to what we call move the needle on an issue, if you want to eliminate sex trafficking, if you want to make a better healthcare environment for queer women, if you want to empower kids to get a better education, I'm just reeling through some things I've worked on this week. Um, this morning. <laughs> yeah, sometimes in my inbox. Then- What's the full range of ways we can do that? Is it bringing product to the table if you're a company and deploying that to communities that otherwise don't have access? Is it, um, if you're a high profile person, bringing attention to an issue? Is it getting people to care? Because I think most of us believe that there's some entity out there in the world, whether it's politicians or nonprofits, whoever, that's somehow trying to be fair. And as with anything in life, that's not the way it works. It's the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's the people who work the smartest on an issue. And sometimes factors are within their control and sometimes they're not who make a difference on their issues. I mean, marriage equality, things like that that happened extraordinarily fast within the big trajectory of social issues change are because the right combination of people and organizations and factors got together and made something happen. I've worked on issues where meaningful, life-changing global change happened relatively quickly, whether that was HIV or marriage equality. Um, and then I worked on issues that incredible amounts of money and energy went into, and I don't know that they amounted to a whole lot. Right. So it's it, it takes work and it takes smart work and it takes experience and it takes working across sectors and collaborating. And so that's what we do. That's um, it's amazing. And I'm going to probably try to embarrass you later with some of the things that <laughs> I've, I've been told, you know, because because <laughs> it's because the level on which you're doing this is crazy. Um, the uh, the question I have is so so you you grow up in Seattle, you go to high school there. You did you go away for school? Did you stay local? So I didn't. This is kind of interesting. I thought in high school I wanted to be a lawyer and. 
I applied to all kinds of colleges, got into some that were far away and better, and inevitably decided that I wanted to stay local, getting back to this IQ, EQ thing, and go to the University of Washington, both because it was less expensive, and I thought that I might be able to talk my parents into more money for law school, and because all my friends who were coming back from the University of Washington, which was the big local, you know, public university, were having fun. And I had certain friends coming back from other places just burned out, saying they wanted to transfer home. And I wanted both. And it was a really strong school. So I went to the University of Washington and got a business degree. I then, right after college, I worked in consumer products and was there for the first kind of tech boom of the 90s. So worked for various startups, including Amazon in the early years. Okay. And I was just really burned out. I was both between... When the, you say consumer products, what exactly does that, what, what does that amount to in terms of like, what were you doing for them? Sure. What? So back in the day, um, one of the typical jobs you would try to get if you had a business degree, which is what I had, was getting into these management development programs. So I ended up working for the Gallo Winery. Other people worked for Procter & Gamble. And it was a traditional track. You learned to be a salesperson, a manager, and then you went to whatever direction you wanted, marketing, finance, et cetera. So I did that for a few years, but again, tech boomed and was far more glamorous and better paying. So I jumped into that. Okay. And I just hit a point where I'd been working, I mean, truly 60 to 80 hours a week. And I was like, I don't know, 27, 28. And I felt like an 80 year old. I was like, I like what I do. And it wasn't that I was miserable, but I was like, do I really want to be in 20 years looking in the mirror having sold widgets? Yeah. So, and what were you doing tech wise? What were you, what so were you for those? My companies? last job, I was at Amazon and I was a product manager. So the biggest job or the biggest last position I had there was running the gift department. Okay. So I handled how Amazon displayed products with holidays. I managed the gift certificate business, which is one of those things most people don't think about, but is actually an incredibly interesting, lucrative area of retail. Is that because people don't use them? I, that's uh -huh. I've heard some statistics. They don't use them. The interest, what's called the float, the interest you get while that money is sitting in your account between the time the person buys it and uses it is Trust me, it's a good business to be yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and most, yeah, I mean, depending on the industry, 30 to 50% of people never use them. Yeah. So it's Yeah, people are people are embarrassed to use them. People forget they about forget them. They, have they them. put them in a drawer. Yep. And exactly. I'm sure we can find some oh, right in absolutely. here. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, so, so that's, uh, that's interesting that you're, you know, working with something where it's almost like you're, you're packaging in a way and going like, again, what's the biggest impact that we could have? How are they going to present it? How are they, you know, putting it out there? Because that sounds a lot of, of what you do. It's going, you're going, okay, I've got this, this person that wants to give me resources to put toward this, uh, this issue, but I need to figure out what's the best way to package it. Who are the best people to collaborate with? Mm -hmm. What's the issue? Yep. I mean, you really have to do a ton of things. So I think there are two common elements between there and what I do now that are just completely ubiquitous. One is that is, I mean, what we call it is project and product management, working across people, making people come together to a, you know, joint end conclusion where they might not otherwise be incented to do so. So again, I've always liked people. I, I like working with different kinds of people. I used to like working with the engineers when the marketing people didn't understand how to work with the engineers. I also liked the marketing people. So that element was good. And then the other more technical piece, which is completely the same as what I do now, is behavioral economics and figuring out why people do what they do. How do we merchandise something so buy, people buy more? How do we merchandise things so people click through more? Um, just understanding why people do what they do is fascinating to me. Yeah. And that's what we do now. How do you get a politician to care about an issue? How do you get the average consumer to care about an issue or to give money? How do we get people doing something bad to do something good? It's really, it's so, it's so fascinating to me. I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, it's almost like if you were in Hollywood, you'd be this like kind of producer director that, because you kind of have, you have the business mind, you bring the resources together and yet you could also, you know, do the art side of it. Yeah. You know, I the, always used to emotional. say, so whenever there's a tech boom, one of the big things people in tech talk about is like what company they're going to start. That's kind of the North Star is the entrepreneur they're going to be. And I used to feel like there was something wrong with me almost <clears throat> because I didn't have that instinct. And I remember saying to someone once, I don't have this drive to go start my own company. I'm the person you want to bring with you when you do. 
Yeah. If you want something implemented as best as can be, that is where I'm good. I'm not the ginormous you're a fi- visionary. You're a field general. Yeah. You're, yeah. I think that's probably a good... Yeah. But you seem like you do it in a way that's uh, with uh, grace and style so that it doesn't feel heavy handed. I mm-hmm. mean, how are you with um, pulling? How do you how do you um, kind of allow people to show up and use their mm-hmm. particular gift? What, what it's a you- great question. So that is something I think I'm actually good at now. It took a long time because I believe everyone tends to manage people in the way they think they want to be managed. And one thing I learned in grad school, just data-wise, is how very different people are and the different incentives they respond to. I remember when I was doing the sales for Gala Wines, I was very frustrated once by the salesperson. I couldn't get to perform. I remember my boss sitting me down. He's like, Maggie, you're managing him and your whole team the way you want to be managed, which is encouraging them, patting them on the back, giving them, you know, a gold star. And he was like, this kid is an ex-football player. He, not to stereotype anyone, but he was just saying he is used to being yelled at. He's used to being like kind of kicked in the teeth. He's, you know, you're giving him the exact opposite of what he, as a conditioned human, responds to. He said, you're going to have to be a little tougher. And when he does things wrong, you know, we knew he was leaving the field early and like not doing some of the basics of his job. He's like, you're going to need to kick him in the teeth a little bit. And I'm telling you, the first million times in my career, I had to do things that were out of my style, comfort zone. I mean, I'd go home and cry. It was, But I also, you kind of learn that if you don't do it, it's not going to work. So where I've gotten to now, fast forward 20 years, I jokingly have been called by many people over the years, the velvet hammer, because (laughs) I do deeply always want someone to feel, to leave an encounter or a situation feeling good. I'm not someone who gets any reward or has any instinct to make anyone feel bad. And at the same time, I also have a directness. I've kind of lost the fear of my 20s about not calling it like it is. And I've also learned that people I think are infinitely happier and do better when you're straight with them. So now I'm pretty comfortable respectfully helping people do their best. And I think, I like to think that most of my employees would say that. I've had a lot of people come back and say, you know, that typical, oh, I didn't know at the time that you helped me develop and I know you actually cared about me and it wasn't a negative atmosphere. Yeah. It's great, great parenting advice. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking of, you know, and I'm and I'm <laughs> I'm going, God, where could I improve on that where your kids are different and how oh, do you yeah. motivate them in yep. different ways? And, you know, are you trying to do this like one size fits all approach to it? And it just it it won't work. Right. I couldn't agree more. I've I, I think every parent feels like I have two children that I don't know how they came from the same parents. Yeah. They're so different in what works and what yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And And I don't know how you have, what I have is I have one who's sort of wired a lot more like me in the sense that I know what motivates her. I know exactly how to push the buttons. And the other one, I'm always a little bit, you know, cocking my head like my dog when she hears a high pitched noise. I'm like, hmm. Yeah, we definitely. Not sure what drove you on that one, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, we we have one that's that's more like Deirdre and one that's more like me, I would say. You know, there are crossovers, but there are um, in general. Yes. so, yeah, and you just sometimes d- don't know how to uh, motivate, you know, as soon as you, like my dad's, uh, my dad's saying is that, you know, the the definition of parenting is, you know, wh- as soon as you figure out what it's going to be, you yeah. know, once you, you go, okay, I got this, boom, th- there's, you know, that the next thing is coming down the line. Like 100%. there will be, as soon as you feel like I got this, like, yep. we're in yep. a good spot, then it's like something else yep pops up to challenge you. You know the advice I got, which is stuck in my head forever since before I had kids, a friend of mine who was a New York Times writer, very good with words, he said, it's the old-fashioned radio dial. He said, it's not turning it to a volume number. You're just perennially kind of going up or down, trying to find the right tone and approach for a situation. And sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Yeah. But it's just constant kind of navigation. Yeah. Yeah, which is all also again going back to your work, kind of what you're doing. You're not. It's like you're not going to fully solve these problems. Nope. They will always exist in yep. some way. 
you'll always be battling them, but you're kind of tuning in the dial and going, okay, this is going to help move the needle. Oh, that's a little too far mm-hmm. this way. Um, so, so you're in the tech world, you decide at that point, how did, how did that transition go? Was that the transition from the tech world into this global philanthropy? And was it immediately your own company or was it something else? No. So there was an intermediary phase. So I knew I was burned out. I knew I didn't want to be doing technology, at least in the way I was doing it 20 years later. And also I should say from a gender perspective, a big factor in my decision was I saw no female senior leadership and I knew I I'd just gotten married. I knew I wanted to have kids in the next few years and I saw no trajectory in technology because there was no trajectory at that time that wasn't working 60 to 80 hours a week. So that definitely played a factor. And I, I definitely felt an interest and an instinct towards getting to something I cared more about. I'd had some opportunities to sit on some boards and go on some political training trips. And I knew that was more interesting to me and more fulfilling. So I spent a year or two trying, just looking at different opportunities and no one then saw the transferability of skills. So they were like, well, you've got this great career in business. We don't understand how that translates to nonprofits. Like you can come volunteer. So I finally, I made the acquaintance of a a gentleman who to this day is one of the best mentors I've ever had. He was retiring from Microsoft and had become interested in microfinance back when no one had heard of microfinance. And he said, you know, have you ever heard of it? I said, well, you know, in some New York Times economist type articles. I'm going to admit my ignorance so you can explain microfinance. That's probably a very, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of acronyms and things. So microfinance is a practice predominantly um, back then recognized in developing countries, but there's a real need for it in the U.S. as well, which I can get to in a minute if we care. The short version is if you think about your life, there have been all time, all kinds of times where you needed capital, whether it was for student loans or a mortgage on a house or to, you know, get a car or from your parents. Like we've all had, or insurance, right, to cover for times where you had big um, bills come in. In developing contexts, that doesn't exist, that financial system. So poverty, believe it or not, is not actually a state of being. Your finances go up and down. What poverty is, is when you have a down, like all humans have, you have no way to get back up. Family member gets sick, you lose your job, it's over. There's no, you know, there's no getting back. Yeah. And so what microfinance is, is the stereotypical version is when you kind of buy the woman the goat and you know, for $50 and now she can sell milk at the market and has an ongoing revenue stream. So it's investing capital in small increments, but they can be quite life-changing. It's insurance, it's all kinds of things. Same thing here. So in a deme- in a developed country context like the US, what it costs to start the average small business is about $20,000, but the average, you can start applying for loans at 100000 at a bank. So if I'm someone who wants to start a bodega or a fruit stand or this or that, I need five, I need 10, I need $20,000. There's nowhere for me to go get that. Or some of these folks will have um, a small business, whatever, a hair shop or whatever. They need a little capital to like hire that extra employee or the delivery truck or whatever. But again, you can't get a loan for that in the traditional finance system. So that's the idea of what microfinance okay. is. Okay, got it. Okay, thank you. So that's... yes, it's it's actually I could go down a whole rabbit hole on that. I find it infinitely. Yeah, I do too, and we won't. But, yeah, I, exactly. but at some point, maybe we'll uh, you know discuss because that, that that is very interesting uh, to me. I, I'd like like to know more about it, but not right right. Now. It's yeah. amazing. So. This gentleman was starting, he was retiring, he was starting this microfinance organization. He had this brilliant guy, Jeff Davis, who knew microfinance, had done it in the field, you know, Harvard guy. And he was also kind of looking for someone to do more of the marketing and the management side, which is what I could do. And thankfully, he was someone, given his background, who was willing to take a chance on me, even though I probably didn't have the most... Your resume didn't show yeah, that appropriate that's what resume. You, yeah. And to this day, again, one of the greatest jobs I've ever had, amazing organization. We did kind of a VC model around supersizing small to medium-sized microfinance organizations. I was getting to travel all over the world. Um, just a great, great job. But during that time period, a couple of things happened. My ex-husband, we were married at the time, had a job opportunity in New York. And I'd always loved New York, wanted to live in New York. And since my job at that point was pretty global, I could be stationed other places. And then also I did start my family and I went back to school. I got my MBA in, at Columbia when we were living in New York. Okay. So triumvirate of factors. 
I ended up going to part-time and then eventually leaving that organization. And so in that period where I was having my kids and in grad school, I thought to myself, well, I'll consult a little on the side when I have time, which of course pretty immediately became a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and so I got to work with everyone from, I worked at the UN on microfinance issues. I worked for Mac Cosmetics on their AIDS fund. Um, it was, I was just kind of a person for hire on social issues. But but how did you do it? Because I'm just trying to think if I, did I miss it? Or so you're working for this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go to New York. You're yeah. still working for this Correct. person. You go back to Columbia to get your mm-hmm. MBA. Yep. You're still working for this person or no yes. at that point? I think I'd gotten and a part-time at that point and okay. I had met. Oh yeah. There was, so. By the way, I think I know who the person is, but I won't embarrass you unless you want to say. I, Wait, what do you mean? Is, is it, uh, it doesn't matter. No. Okay. Um, so at the time I will say my life, I have some visceral memories of that point that are pretty comedic. So for starters, Uh, It turned out because my entire career at that point for like eight years had been sort of on the more linguistic side of life. I went to retake the GMAT because my old score didn't stand anymore. And it turns out when you don't use math for eight years, it kind of goes away. Yeah. So I was, I had this period, I remember I would work sort of during the, well, sort of, I would work during the day. I also had a newborn. I did have help. So I'm not pretending I'm superwoman by any means. But I remember I would get up around 1, 2 a.m. to nurse her right back when it was like the three, four hour periods. And then I would just stay up to stay for my GMAT. And then I would go into my work day. Oh, my God. So there are definitely, I mean, I could never do that today. But when you look back, you're like, how old were you at the time? I was 32. 32. And what year is this like in the. uh, Well, I'm 40. So it's like 13 years ago. Okay. Because my brother was at at uh, Columbia getting oh, his kidding. MBA in like I want to say like two thousand ish, so ninety nine two thousand two thousand one. I think I was Maddie was born in two thousand four, so yeah. I was like two thousand four two thousand five. I went back later. I'd been out of undergrad like eight yeah, years. he was the same, but he might be he he went back a little later, so he was older than a lot of his classmates. But I think, yeah, maybe he got out in 2000 or something. So he was probably right before me. Oh, so Anyway, that's how I was just trying to piece together where you were, where we were in the world at this time. At the time. Um, And and so, man, so you're doing all of this, like, did you sleep? I mean, like, no. And how long of a time period was was this? That was enough. Honestly, I feel like I've just come out of it in the last couple of years in the sense that I, I've learned to own some of my <laughs> habits. I tend to take on way too much. I have a voracious appetite for anything I'm excited about. Yeah. And so I'm always convinced I can do more. I mean, my dad always had this saying that if you wanted something done to give it to the busiest p- person in the room. Okay. I, I, I have to bring <laughs> this up then. I, I texted you last week. And I know what you do, and I imagine that you are the busiest person I, I in the world. I was traveling. You were in New York. You I said you were, you were on a board for something. Oh, I don't yes, know. yes, yes, yes. And you you responded in like, I want to say under a minute. <laughs> and then we went back and forth setting this up, and you it was like done. And I, I, I was, holy crap. Like she's in the middle of something. How is she it's the only this? way you get it done. Yeah. When people ask, how do you do it, you know, in quotes, I always honestly say, like, one day at a time. All I know is how to get a lot done and to keep moving. But and do you? But okay, so let me ask you about that. Are you able to, if everything that comes in, you deal with it right then? Yeah. How are you able to still go deep as you do? You just is it that compartmentalization that you talked about? Like, what? How can you? You know. Maybe you're just, you know, probably you're just, you know, more talented or capable than a lot of other people. But there's something I wonder what it is in your approach to it that allows you to do that, to go, you know, make this appointment for a podcast with this jackass back in L.A. <laughs> while you're like saving nations and and not get thrown off like what you're doing in that meeting. That's just but that is my life. Like I can be in a board meeting with very high profile people and my kid is texting me, you know, about where the sweater is. You have to. I don't have a choice. And and I actually don't think it's like I'm better or whatever. I think it's like any learned skill in life. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to lie. I have many times where I'm sitting around the table, generally with all men, and I'm like, none of you is texting about the peanut butter right now under the table. 
Yeah. None of you. You know, I mean, like coming to this podcast, like I just came from coaching my kids academic decathlon team from seven to eight every morning. Yeah. And you just, you do it. I I don't have an answer. I'm always coming up with new structures. One thing, um, I've always been pretty regimented about certain things with my kids. Like I go to work earlier than most of my staff, but I like five to eight-ish is my kids' time. No phones, no anything. And if I have to do something, if there's something urgent going on, I always say to my kids, I have to respond to this client because this is going on in the news right now. I will be back with you in 20 minutes. Like they know that this is, they when they have my time and they have my focus, they have my time and they have their my focus. And I think that's an interesting parenting paradigm, which when I first kind of went back to work and truthfully, the majority of my dear friends are stay-at-home moms. So we talk about this a lot. I, I don't have that routine of kind of bringing my kids along with me to go to the store or whatever. I mean, every grocery that arrives at my house comes from Amazon Fresh. I don't have time for the grocery store. My time is either effective work time or effective kid time for the most part. It's all pretty um, regimented in a way. Yeah. And at the same time, it's always developing or it's evolving. It's, you know, I walk my kids to school every morning, that's, yeah. except when I travel. And that's been a thing their whole lives. That and then lying down with each of them at night to read books is kind of our time. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. You're it's, incredibly you know. efficient. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. There are comedic moments where I have like four volleyball player, 13 year old volleyball players in the basket. And I'm like, okay, guys, I, I mean, I'll name drop a little only because I know people enjoy it and find it funny. I'll be like, I need you to be quiet for the next five minutes. Like I have to do this conference call with Miley Cyrus, you know? <laughs> and of course they think that's hilarious. So they're like, sure, you know, big eyes in the back seat. But that's my reality. And and no. I mean, by the way, I've here's the other thing, just from a working mom perspective, I have all kinds of stories. I remember, you know, the nanny not showing up when Maddie was probably three. Um, when I lived in New York, she a subway issue, whatever. And I had a could not miss meeting at a really fancy, you know, big high rise law firm in New York. I don't remember what it was. And I remember it just being one of those moments in life. You're like, well, we're going to figure this out. And I took her. I mean, up again, like the security, the 360 degree views of New York. And I looked at this receptionist and I said, listen, you're going to think I'm crazy. This kid is three going on six. I mean, could never have done this with my second child when she was three. <laughs> I said, she is going to sit here and color. And I need you to keep an eye on her and I need to go to this meeting. And as women tend to do, she was like, no worries, got it. So I've had all kinds of other working mom situations that have been comedic slash tragic, depending on your view. Yeah, yeah. No, I can only I can <laughs> I only mean, my imagine. kids have sat in, you know, when they are sick, they, for the most part, come to work with me. I mean, sometimes I can work from home, but sometimes they come with me and they sit in my room with an iPad and movies and or whatever the case may be, and I do my meetings. Yeah. So it's uh, it's not pretty. Yeah. <laughs> so do you ever have times when you are like, do you ever have lazy days, or do you ever mm -hmm. have uh, do you ever have down days? Do you ever have days oh, when you're like, you just feel like. I can't, I don't, I don't want to get up. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want, cause it doesn't sound like you do, but I, from what I know of human nature, you must. Of course. But, but it doesn't sound like I, I, I so I don't have down days as much as I have exhaustion. I have days where I can't get up. Like, cause I'm, I've traveled too much. I've done whatever I'm sick. Um, and that leads to some self-pity for sure. Like, how the heck did I get myself in this moment? And and there's envy. Like, everyone has. I look at my stay-at-home mom friends. I'm envious of them. I look at my working friends who either didn't have kids or their kids are out of the house and they aren't trying to do both. And I and they can thus put the, the gas, you know, the pedal to the metal on their careers in a way that I can't. I turn down things every night of the week that other people will give their eye teeth to go to. So I'm home with my kids. Yeah. So I definitely feel like I'm given kind of 75% to everybody and I wish I was giving 100. So um, the good news, I don't get the, the down as much only because I truly love being a parent and I truly love, for the most part, what I do. Um, I just get really tired. Tired. I mean, I like half the time now my 13-year-old when we're reading like puts me to bed and I'm like falling asleep. I mean, it's one oh, of those yeah. things I'm like I've turned into my father. Yeah. 
I know. I'm, I'm completely I'm, falling off. I always say once I get horizontal yep. to do like the, read the book at night. It's a lot of times exactly. it's like they're nudging me. Like, <laughs> well, and you, you do that thing where you can feel yourself saying the sentence and it's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. oh yeah. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm notorious for that throughout my life. Like a, a late night conversation. I say something, they say something, I say something, they say something. I'm out. I love it. You know, that's I'm awesome. Out, just totally out. <laughs> um, and so that happens with the reading to the, sometimes you just, it's just like, oh, as yeah. soon as you, you I'm lay like Harry down, Potter just, uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so, so where are you now? Now, now, uh, global philanthropy, are, mm -hmm. are you still running that? Did, did Mark Cuban buy that? What was no, the story? So Mark or? Wagner bought it. Oh, I, who okay. is Mark Cuban's, they've done all their business together. Okay. His business partner. Um, so he's a fascinating guy. So when they sold broadcast.com and he came into money, he, not surprisingly, was asked to give money to join boards, et cetera, and quickly saw a lot of the inefficiencies in the nonprofit system. So he has started, you know, buying organizations, trying to better it and is trying to create or is trying to is creating an entity that we believe is going to fundamentally change the face of the social good industry, for lack of a better word, just trying to make it more efficient, trying to bring technology to the table. Um, trying to use smart strategy like we provide so that folks don't go down rabbit holes. Because philanthropy, it's one of those things in life that until you come to that moment, who the heck knows how to do it? Yeah, You know, there was no class when you were growing up about how to do smart philanthropy. So we hope that if we can bring smarter strategies and a smarter set of tools to the table, we can actually make a bigger difference on these issues faster. So yes, so the short so, version is so, he bought my company last year. So he year. bought your company and yes. he's also bought several other others companies. like yours. Exactly. And is, is, it, is the idea to put them together in this conglomerate? Precisely. Or is, so we or, can offer clients, whether they're philanthropists or nonprofits, a suite of tools that they can count on that are smart, that are cost effective. Um, so they don't have to be out there henpecking and trying to figure it out and navigate complicated situations. So yeah, it's really exciting. It's still relatively new. It's only been a few months. Um, I was ready for a bigger opportunity. I love what I do during the day, but I had hit that point where I'd been doing it for a decade. And I was like, it felt a little bit like, you know, pause, repeat. Like I wake up, do the same things. I know I'm doing a good job. I know I'm making a difference on these issues, but how can I make a bigger difference? Yeah. And so this felt like that opportunity. Yeah. And, and so what would you say, um, kind of, if you had, uh, this, I, I don't typically do that. I like to, as you can you notice, I like to just riff and not have these <laughs> pre-planned questions, but, but this is kind of, could sound cheesy, but I, I'm just thinking of it. Is there one, if you had to go like, this is my biggest victory mm. in terms of, of impact or saving lives or something, what's the biggest victory? And also on the flip side, what, are there any big either regrets or gaffes or missteps in mm -hmm. some way where you go, oh, if I could have had that moment back and I did this instead of that, it would have made a difference. And, I, and I've learned from it or I'm still beating myself up about mm -hmm. it or anything. So. so victories, I feel like there's a number of small ones, but I actually believe, and this was part of why I sold the company, that my biggest victory hasn't come yet. Mm -hmm. I actually believe my goal is that my career wraps up in 20, however many years, that what I do next will have been that. And I'm not sure yet what that is. Having said that, there are definitely things I can look at and be very proud of. That very first example, what we did with microfinance, indirectly, so directly helped millions of people work out of poverty through the organizations we worked with. And indirectly, because of the way we did it and the way it was described and who we partnered with, really kind of brought microfinance to the main stage in international development before it was not really talked about as an intervention in the way it is now. Um, I do believe that we played a really meaningful role in that. Another example, I did work a number of years ago um, when they were together with Debbie Moore and Ashton Kutcher on sex trafficking. And a lot of the seeds that we sowed and a lot of the perspectives that were brought to the table, you know, I've seen playing out in federal legislation that passed a year and a half ago. So I think that when you bring the right strategies and ideas to the table, and if you can 
get the right people to coalesce around them, that's where you see the big victories. And I'm working on a couple right now that I think will fall into that category in a few years. Um, as far as failures, I have a couple things come to mind, right? Because there's personal and then there's missed opportunity. The missed opportunity, the one that was just a big failure in my career, I worked for a client, John Legend, for a number of years on education reform, which is something I just believe is incredibly important and necessary and more necessary now, even than when we worked on it. But it was just one of those issues that kind of, don't get me wrong, there's still many people working um, valiantly on it. But I think it died on the altar of political um, discord. I feel like every time I was in a conversation that became rational, like-minded people agreed on 80% of it, yet the whole thing fell apart because people went into these politicized camps on either end and pretended they didn't agree. And then nothing got and done. And then nothing happened. And I think of any issue I've worked on, that was one where more time and money and energy and you know high-profile people and politicians got involved to no avail. I think nothing changed. And yeah. so that was a big disappointment. And and what do you learn from that? Like what what was it was it just the way it was or was there something in the way you guys approached it that you feel hmm. or that contributed to that or is just kind of like yeah, sometimes it doesn't work out. I think it's a combination of sometimes things don't work out and you take your losses and also I think it's a big function of the times we're living in because it's not that long ago and I think it was as discourse was becoming increasingly politicized. And I think it was a time where a lot of us didn't realize that yet. We still thought if you were reasonable and talked to the other side, and I felt like I was almost on both sides in different conversations, um, people would be able to come together. And that didn't happen. And certain things got so politicized. I've never seen so much bad information put out. Like I would talk to very informed people. My mother and I would get fights about this. My mother, who's a retired school teacher, because of things she would be being mailed, you know, from her union. And, for, and by the way, both sides were guilty of this. Yeah. That I was like, but that's not true. You know, it's just kind of old-fashioned political mailings where you tell people things. And it just, it, it's unfortunate because kids are the ones that suffer at yeah. the end of the day. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, I don't know what you're, it's, it's so funny sitting down with you. Cause I'm like, she's got to go save the world. I can't, oh, you know, we're, we're getting up to an hour here. I can't have her sitting here. Like go, go. Trust me, it's all I do all day. Save it's some countries. Um, <laughs> Which is hilarious since most of my day is on like conference calls and reviewing documents. And, yeah. Yeah. But that's everything. I, I think everything when you, when you get, underneath it or you actually follow someone around in their day you realize um none of it's as glamorous yeah yeah, yeah. but it is the the overall takeaway of what you're doing is having actually this is a this is a good you know segue i mean so our mutual friend just was like these are things and i i, I actually <laughs> can't even do it because she's like she'll never talk about this but um yeah it's not really where i'm not i don't know if i'm really into the you've you've you know, met enough. I mean, you've, you've told us enough names. I mean, she did say, you, you know, you, you met Nelson Mandela. I don't yeah. know how that came about. Yeah, That was early HIV work and yeah, him, Nelson, uh, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu. And then also, again, um, I was fortunate enough to work on a project for Richard Branson that brought them together. And the idea, I mean, it, it, came to fruition. It's called The Elders Today. I think it's taken a little bit of a different path than was originally envisioned. But the idea was, in all communities, we look to our elders at some level, probably not enough in many, but you know, there's some acknowledgement that wisdom has power and benefit. And this was after um, we went into Iraq the first time. And as lore has it, some people say that Saddam was actually about to, st that people had talked him into stepping down. Someone had given, had said, you know, you can have asylum. And we literally, and they needed 48, 72 more hours. And that was when we bombed. So the idea was, how can you bring wisdom to the table to um, avoid things like that? The idea was that hopefully if we could have stopped the rush on the invasion side, maybe we could have had time for a more peaceful solution and avoided the loss of life. You know, obviously there are, wise minds that can disagree on that and what actually happened. But the idea was, how do we take all these folks, especially in the political and business worlds, who get put out to pasture, sort of, yeah. and have all this 
wisdom to still offer. And so I was able to work with Nelson Mandela and um, his wife, Rasa Michelle, and um, Desmond Tutu and a number of other people trying to bring some of those wise voices to bear on some of the world's more intractable problems. Yeah. So, yeah. That's incredible. And then, yeah. and then um, just, uh, you, you know, we, we talked about this, so we were okay with it and we don't have to go deeply into it, but I'm just wondering, cause we're, we're focusing on professional, but you've got, gone through a divorce. I mean, yeah. how has that yeah. kind of informed your, you know, your life, how, how are you doing? And also does that kind of, uh, inform the work in some way? Mm. Does the, does the, uh, is there a correlation or, I mean, it's just, it's such a, it's such a common thing, but I just, I, it's called 10,000 no's. So I feel like, you know, uh, it, it's something worth bringing up since you Absolutely. said you're okay talking with it. I, 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 I'm and if fine not, talking about it. No, I mean, it was definitely a formative experience in my life. I mean, a very difficult one that I wouldn't wish on anyone. But again, I think as I get older, some of those trite sayings that like your parents told you come true. And I think a couple for me were especially the case with getting a divorce. First, any difficult experience, tragedy, time in your life, I do believe it give, it brings amazing opportunity and you can choose to take advantage of that or not. And so for me, it ended up giving me the opportunity to really, for the first time in a decade, right? Because I'd had my head down raising kids, working. It gave me the first time to kind of say, okay, who do I want to be? And what do I want my life to be for this next chapter that's going to look a little different than I had anticipated. Yeah. And so I had to do more growth and self-examination and much of it deeply painful than I had ever imagined. But I do think I came out of it a more self-aware, purposeful person than I had been before. Um, I also think that in the way that parenting changes everything, you know, when you have this guiding star of like, my kids are watching me right now. What are they going to say in 20 years about how did I handle this and how did I talk about their father and all kinds of things? Um, I certainly know I didn't do it perfectly, but I endeavored to do it in a way that was respectful and healthy for them. Um, and then the other thing that I feel like is that saying of time heals all wounds, because every time I hear someone who's just separated, I get viscerally pained for them because that immediate period is again, nothing I would ever Awful. wish on. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, can't get out of bed pain. It's like, if I didn't have the friends I had, I don't know how I would have made it through pain. And now I'm like, oh yeah, I got a divorce. Not that it's not that I'm that flippant about it, yeah. but you do realize that in those moments where you truly think it's so dark, you might not come out of it. You will with a, with a combination of purpose and effort and time, but you know, it's it's never as dark as it feels in the moment. Which kind of brings us full circle back to what I was asking you in the beginning. You know, it's never as dark as it feels in the moment, which is why I said, how can you do what you do mm. when all these things go wrong? How do you focus on what's going right or how to how to help it? It's it's kind of very, very similar mm-hmm. mindset. I, I, it you know, this too is. shall pass. This too and, shall pass. And and I do believe in my core that all we can control is ourselves. So what can you do in this moment, whether it's in a moment of pain or on behalf of the world? I just want to bring my best self to the situation. And I can't control for, you know, what was that famous Mr. Rogers quote that in a tragedy, look for the helpers. You know, people uh, talk about it a lot with 9-11 and different things. But, you know, I look around and all I see are people being good parents, trying to make the world a better place. I mean, imperfectly, of course. But um, I think the bad guys are kind of in the minority. They're pretty bad in some cases, but I do think they're in the minority. That That's a great place for us to, I think, like wrap it up. Because, <laughs> Perfect. No, because, I mean, it, really... Um, Maggie Nielsen, I thank you so much for for being here. What you do is incredible. You're just such a cool oh, spirit. Well, I mean, you're you. really so warm and and uh, approachable. I'm 
so Thank happy you. that you graced me with your presence. Seriously. Oh, well, I appreciate the invitation. It was fun. Yeah. I, I, uh, and I wish I could tell you I was going to go save the world, but I'm going to go to a parenting class. Apparently. Well, you know, My one, one. World, one, one kid at a time. Um, <laughs> where can people, um, if people could follow you, I don't know if it really applies cause you probably don't want, I don't, I don't know, but, well, but like, I am what on about Twitter your, and all that good oh, you stuff are? Okay, so in give, terms of general information. Give everybody. Yeah. yeah if they want. Yeah. So on Twitter, oh geez, I was, I think I'm MR Nielsen and Facebook, all that Instagram, all that kind of and stuff. And Nielsen, N-E-I-L-S-O-N. Any relation to Nielsen way? No, although it is spelled right. It's spelled exactly Which is the less common way. And I often teased, I always have a few employees who live down in Venice. I'm like, does it creep you out? They're like, yeah, just a little. It's kind of a main street on the way to work. They're like, hmm. Yeah. Little big brother. <laughs> no, thank you. This thank, fun. thank you. Thanks again for listening to 10,000 No's. If you haven't subscribed to us yet, please do. So each week's episode is automatically downloaded to your computer or phone. And if you like what you heard, please help us get the word out by sharing it with your friends and family. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.